This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hello, I'm Joe Lauder with you for the Hack podcast. Should governments have to think about the impacts that their decisions will have on future generations? You might remember there was a case a few years back where a bunch of kids tried to sue the Minister for the Environment over a coal mine and they said that the government had a duty of care to protect them from climate change. Well, they're back. They still want the government to think about their futures. And this time, they've got the support of a federal senator. So coming up, we're going to hear from Senator David Pocock about that proposal. And we also get a bit of a preview, a bit of a lowdown about the Matildas make or break match against Canada for the Women's World Cup with a very, very enthusiastic hack reporter and Matildas superfan. Hack. We know the amount of offenders has actually decreased, but unfortunately there's that small cohort that is offending more. So it's concentrating on responding to that as well as intervening early where we can. On Triple J. Kids as young as 10 stealing cars, breaking into homes, winding up in juvie. Youth crime has been a major issue in Queensland, especially in places like Townsville, Mount Isa and Cairns. And you might also remember the stuff that went down in Alice Springs earlier this year with the Prime Minister flying in. So there's been a lot of debate about these kids, about what leaders should be doing about them. And like when it's talked about as an issue like youth crime, it's often that these like these kids are a problem that need to be fixed, but we don't often hear from the kids committing these crimes for a lot of reasons. Brooke Fryer is with the ABC's Indigenous Affairs team and she spent months talking to young offenders for an investigation with ABC's background briefing. She's here to chat about now. Um, Brooke, thanks for coming on Hack. Can you just start by telling me about how much of a problem youth crime is in Mount Isa in Queensland and why you wanted to do this investigation? So the government actually says that, you know, youth offending in Queensland's at like lowest on record. It's down 20% of since 10 years ago. Um, and experts have said the tough laws that we've seen over recent years have seen a rise in kids behind bars and have said, you know, those laws have been in response to um, some horrible deaths that we've seen in southeast Queensland caused by youth offenders. And this rise in children in Queensland in the youth justice system is seeing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children disproportionately represented in the juvenile detention, um, in juvenile detention centres. So on an average nine in Queensland, there's, you know, up to 280 young people behind bars. Um, it's the highest out of every state and territory. In saying that, you know, youth offending is not at its peak, Mount Isa does have the highest youth offending rate in Queensland. So... I decided to, well, firstly, I was interested in this investigation because we are hearing so much noise out of Queensland and the, you know, the fallout of those, those deaths that we've seen over the last couple of years and the tightening of the youth justice laws and, you know, all these kids getting swept up into the system. So I was interested in that and I wanted to know, because, you know, Queensland has an insanely high reoffending rate. So 57% or about there, if you go into youth detention, you're likely to reoffend again. And if you're sent to the Cleveland Youth Detention Centre, you're more than 90% likely to reoffend. So I wanted to know, you know, Queensland has these reoffending rates. There's so many kids being sent to juvenile detention. Why are we going down this path of incarceration when we just know it's not working? It's not rehabilitating these young people because they're being sent back there again. That was my one of my questions. And then the other question was, you know, we're hearing so much about these children from politicians, from community members, from services, 
even youth services are talking about them, but where are the children and their families in this conversation? We don't ever hear from them and it's really, really unlikely that they would get up and be so honest and raw about their criminal offences because, you know, it is the kids that I've spoken to, they are so shame about it. So to be able to kind of be a fly on a wall was my goal and I'm, you know, the kids that we did get on, they were just incredible. 90% reoffending rate, um, that's incredibly high and it's so clear that something isn't working. What did you learn about what life was like for these kids before they started committing the crimes and what was going on, I guess, a broader context around what was happening? Yeah, so it's different for every young person and I think it dif- it changes from whereabouts you live as well. Like someone's story could be different in the regions as opposed to, say, like on the Gold Coast or Brisbane. But the children that I spoke to are regional kids, so they um, for, uh, were from Mount Isa. All the children I spoke to were from Mount Isa. And a lot of them, they grew up around disadvantage and kind of surrounded by disadvantage. So someone in their family or family, multiple family members were, you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol. Some of them might have had domestic violence in the home. Yeah, here's an example of what some of the kids that you spoke to, what they said about when you asked them about why they were committing these crimes. Why is everyone stealing cars and breaking into people's houses? I don't know, yeah, miss. That's, I think that's when I didn't have a life, you know, miss. Like, I didn't did like, nothing to my, like, nothing around me to do, you know. Like, when you're small, you know, miss, you got nothing to do and you just go follow the wrong boys mm-hmm. and the boys t- tell you to do that. I don't know. Sometimes kids, they just can't help themselves. Crimes never stop for them. Some kids can't help themselves. They got no supporters. Some parents not there for them. That's why they do crime a lot. They feel lost. I feel I feel lost when I was stealing a car, but now since this program came along, I just keep going doing program mm. all the way. I never stop. What shocked you the most about what you heard from these kids? Well, apart from you know what you just heard, them being so honest about why they do what they do. And like James said, some kids don't have, you know, parents there for them. Um, Not every kid, of course, but some of them. They also said, um, not just those two boys that you heard from, but some other boys as well that I spoke to, of course, it's a horrible thing to break into someone's house, but they all said to me they would never hurt the person that they were breaking into. They would never touch that person. One kid said that, you know, you get in, you get out, you don't want to bother anybody. You're listening to Hack. I'm Joe Lauder and I've got Indigenous Affairs reporter with the ABC, Brooke Fryer, with me. She's done this three-part investigation into youth crime in Queensland. Brooke, as well as the reasons why these kids get into crime in the first place, in this report, you also take a look at the juvenile justice system and how it operates. And one centre in particular where Jackson spent a lot of time. Here's a bit of him describing it to you. It's just feel like that you're locked up in a cage. It's, it's cold too, you know. Like when you when you want to feel like that you want to go on the outside, it's just make you feel no good, you know, miss. Like looking at four walls in the white house for, for four days straight. Yeah, you can't even like have a good stretch or walk, you know, miss. Brooke, what did you find out about these juvie centres? That's actually Jackson talking about um, a watch house. And then after that, he got sent to a juvenile detention centre. And he says that the experience inside the, um, the centres are, you know, similar to the way that he felt in the watch house. You're confined to your room, um, you know, you miss your family. Jackson even grew a little bit when he was in there, so he came out taller. Um, 
Jackson's a very tall boy, so I'm not surprised he grew fast in those three months. But yeah, I learned a lot about the way that the juvenile detention centres work in Queensland. So they have a staff ratio of one youth worker, what is what the department calls them, but they um, also act as guards. So they have one guard per four young people. And when that ratio is not met, they confine kids to their cells um, because it's not safe to bring them out for whatever reason. Um, and they also have this a uh, 12-hour night period. So that 12-hour night period is a standard, you know, sleeping time for everybody. But because of these staff shortages, these kids are being confined to their cell for that 12-hour night period plus additional daytime hours. So, you know, over 30,000 times last year across the three centres, kids were locked in their cells alone for between 18 to 24 hours a day. 30,000 times... That's heaps. And also, to be clear, when we're talking about kids in juvie, a lot of these kids haven't actually been found guilty of a crime at that point in time, right? Yeah, so um, over 90% of them are actually being held on remand. So it means, you know, they're awaiting their trial. Yeah, so they could be found um, innocent despite having already spent time in a juvenile detention centre and locked into their, possibly confined to their cells for um, hours. Obviously, the other side of all of this is the victims. And we do hear as well that they're often, you know, very fearful after a home invasion um, or, you know, feel a real sense of violation or fear around um, some of these crimes. There's a bit in the story where Jackson talks about meeting someone whose house was robbed. I told her, you know, sorry for doing it. And she made me feel sad too. It's like I wanted to cry, but I'm thinking, nice, right? She'll be all right. Well, I talked to her. I took the golden golden watch with diamond, goes all the way down to a ring. I think that's what was a great great grandmother. I think I lost it in Amos because that was like a long time. It sounds like that meeting had a real impact on him. Was that part of like the sentencing or a program that he was part of? That was a part of the um, a restorative restorative justice initiative. So, you know, the courts or the police or someone can organise that. And it's um, basically when an offender meets their victim face to face and they just talk about the offence. So you hear from both sides of the story, I guess, and you really get to know each other. And it's an opportunity for both parties to, you know, ask any questions that they wanted to ask. And Jackson was saying when he met this lady, she was, you know, kind of begging him for this, um, watch back but unfortunately Jackson had lost it and he did tell me that um, that was one of the only true times that he really felt bad for what he did. He actually wanted to cry meeting her and hearing her story Um, and even James said that when he saw his victims around and met his victims it it hits their heart a little bit. They do have they do have remorse for what they've done when it's face-to-face. I think it kind of puts, you know, a face to um, something that's otherwise invisible because they don't often see their victims when they're inside their homes. Yeah, and one of the guys that you speak to, as you said, um, who you called James, he was able to turn things around. He hasn't been in trouble with the law for a few years now. What was it that helped him make that change? And I, I guess are there broader lessons or solutions there in what has helped him? Yeah, so James was, um, you know, in this cycle of repeat offending. He never um, made it to juvenile detention, but he was very, very close. He spent, you know, countless times in watch houses, in courtrooms, um, arrested, you know, handcuffed. And he his story is quite remarkable at the moment. Um, he's got a long time girlfriend and they really helped each other to kind of stay focused and 
break that cycle. He's now got a baby boy, which really helps him as well. He's got a job, which helps him as well. But his turning point was when he actually decided by himself to go to um, a local crime diversionary program. He wasn't ordered by the courts or anything like that. And that alone is, you know, a huge step for somebody you know, to make that decision. And he really talks highly of um, the local programs in Mount Isa. It, they really, really helped him. And he, he tells me he doesn't see himself, you know, committing again, which is really exciting. And he doesn't want the same for his son either. And he encourages, you know, everyone else out there that, you know, is young and maybe committing crime to sign up to a local program because he is an example of, you know, how well they can work. Absolutely. Brooke, I really appreciate you coming on Hack and having a chat about it and doing this investigation. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Brooke Fryer is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at the ABC and you can check out Brooke's full series by searching for Background Briefing on your podcast app or find Background Briefing online. We're still getting so many messages. Someone says on the text line, I worked at a Queensland Youth Justice Centre for three years. I left so disheartened because it was clear the system is not helping. It's just so punitive. Someone else says, I live in North Queensland and have had two cars stolen. And I'd love to see some changes to how we deal with these poor kids rather than just locking them up. And someone else says, thanks for this segment. I work in youth justice in Melbourne and the level of disadvantage I witness is just astounding. 99% of the time, the offending is just part of a much deeper problem. It's heartbreaking and workers feel helpless as well to fix anything without adequate community support. Pack. As the government who is shaping the future that I will be handed, it's time for us to work constructively on what that future could look like. On Triple J. If you've just tuned in, I'm Joe Lauder and I'm hanging out with you for Hack today for Dave Marchese. If you've already got your green and gold scarf on and you might be heading out to watch the Matildas, stick around because we're going to have a bit of a preview of their match tonight with one very nervous Tilly's diehard whose voice you know. Now, one complaint we hear a lot here at Hack about politicians is that they don't really care about young people. They don't care about the decisions they're making and how they will end up affecting young people and generations to come. And a lot of the time you you tell us that you just think pollies only care about the next election. Well, a couple of years ago, a group of school kids tried to change that. They sued the Minister for the Environment. They argued that the Minister had a duty of care to protect them from the impacts of climate change and that she had to consider that when she was approving a coal mine extension. They initially won the case, but then they lost on appeal. Now, they haven't actually given up. Anjali Sharma was the lead litigant in that case and she took her next idea to the independent Senator David Pocock and today he introduced a new bill in Parliament about this. First up, here's a bit of what Anjali Sharma had to say. Hack. I'm here today standing alongside Senator Pocock, my senator, as we table this bill in Parliament to implement a statutory duty of care. Because this bill comes out of years of advocacy by young people, arguing that the decisions that are made in this building, the ones that affect us and shape what our future will look like, should be made with our best interests at heart. It should go unsaid that the health and well-being of young people, the people who will carry our world forward as we head into the future, should be a paramount consideration 
as our government approves bills and debates fossil fuel projects that could contribute to climate change that is shaping the world that we will be handed. As a young person, I feel increasingly scared about the impact that climate change will have on my life. But I'm so proud to be part of a movement of young people who did the research behind this bill, who approached Senator Pocock's office. And I'm so proud that Senator Pocock has worked with me on these new laws that I really hope that the government will come to the table with a constructive and open mind on. On Triple J. I've got Senator David Pocock with me. And as we said, he introduced the private members bill. Senator, thanks for coming on Hack. Evening, Joe. Thanks for having me. Just to start with, can you explain a bit about how these laws would work? Sure. So this would amend the Climate Change Act, which interacts with a whole bunch of other other acts where these various decisions are made to fund projects, uh, to regulate you know, emissions, all those sorts of things. And this essentially inserts a duty of care into six acts that sit or interact with the Climate Change Act. And it would force politicians and policymakers to consider the impact of climate harm on young people and future generations. But then it goes a step f- further and actually stops them making decisions that will damage the health and well-being of young people and future generations. The former government argued that they don't have a duty of care to young people. Like, mm. it's, it's frankly ridiculous. If, if, if politicians aren't in here to look after all Australians and actually make decisions that are good for young people, then what are we doing? We we have to change the way we make decisions and a lot of your listeners are are right. So many decisions are made in here that are on the short short term, looking at the polls, the media cycle, the next election. Uh, it's, It's got to end. How would the government quantify the harms that a particular project would have? Is that something that was established in the Sharma case when that went through? So... In the in the judgment of the when when the um, appeal was successful, the government arguing that they don't have a duty of care, the um, court said that that a big part of that was that they believed that this was a decision for policy, not for the judiciary, and so we want to insert this um, duty of care uh, into legislation in the parliament, where the court is saying that it it fits. As far as quantifying that, we know so much about climate change now this is this has been studied so much we've we've got the modeling they can look at a project and actually say we we know that the this is how much you know greenhouse gas emissions this project will cause and that's likely to contribute whatever you know degrees of warming and we know that every single um point of a degree matters we're we're looking around the world now we're living with 1.2 degrees of warming and it's it's frankly terrifying, and we we have to ensure that the government is making better decisions, listening to scientists, and putting young people's futures front and centre when we're making these big decisions. Are there any projects in particular that you think would have a different outcome or could be impacted if this was in place, this duty of care? Well, we've got a government now that says they accept the science. You know, the, they're acting on climate. Well, the science says we can't afford new fossil fuel projects. The, the new Minister for the Environment has approved three or four coal mine extensions. One that probably is a prime candidate for this would be the federal government is giving $1.5 billion to the middle arm development on Darwin Harbour, which is essentially a, a big gas processing hub that will export gas. 
that unlocks the Beetaloo Basin, which is an extraordinary amount of gas. I think we worked out the other day, it's about 3,100 years worth of Australian household gas use. Wow. Huge gas. And the government's you know, Labor governments in the NT and the federal government are really keen to get this project going. Um, They haven't considered what this will mean for young people, what this will mean for our future. And and that's that's simply not good enough. Have you had any conversations with the government about this bill that you're putting forward? Is there any indication whether they'll support this duty of care? No, nothing formal yet. Uh, I introduced, uh, you know, introduced it uh, today. Or I'll formally introduce it into the, into the Senate this week. Look forward to engaging with them. Like this is so important for for all of us, and and particularly for young people who are going to you know, live through the effects of the decisions that we make today. We have to be considering that. I've heard a lot from the government, as I'm sure everyone has on the news, about how the adults are now in charge. Well, adults actually make decisions that are good for young people. They consider the vulnerable, those who can't vote, those who can't lobby. We can't keep making these decisions that are just good for you know, their mates in the fossil fuel um, lobby and, and you know, fossil fuel executives. It's, it's, just, it's destroying people's futures. Just lastly, we've had a message where people were saying they were concerned about the impact of this on um, jobs. What, would, what do you say to that, just quickly? Well, these are, these are jobs that don't exist yet. So um, it's, that's a hard argument. But the, the, the effect on jobs of not taking bold action on climate change will be disastrous. We, we have to keep that in mind. We're, we're not even spending enough money on adaptation yet because we know there is, there is warming locked in. We're seeing it. And we really have to act. And, and on the point of jobs, you, you talk to people and um, experts in this space, there are massive, massive opportunities for things like green steel, green aluminium. These are industries of the future that will have a, a lot of good paying jobs, mm. uh, particularly if we can process a lot of these products that we just currently ship off, off offshore without doing any value add here, there's, there's actually a huge number of jobs in getting on with building those industries of the future. Senator, I really appreciate you coming on Hack. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's the independent Senator David Pocock. Hack. I'm definitely going to be available, but how we decide to use that is not to be given to the opposition, I think, is the main thing. On Triple Jack. Yeah, it's only a couple of hours now until the Matildas kick off against Canada in the Women's World Cup. If you're a diehard fan, even if you're, I don't know, a newfound fan, I reckon you are probably pretty nervous because if they lose tonight, they're out of the World Cup. Now, to give us a bit of a taste of what we can expect tonight, I've got hack reporter Miles Holbrook walk with me. Miles, for people that don't know, you are Tilly's super fan. You are here right now in your jersey. You've been following them around the country. What is the World Cup atmosphere like? Okay, it, the actual atmosphere itself has been excellent. Uh, obviously, the results have been stressful at times as a Matildas fan, and that has been hard to kind of live through, I think, or survive even. But the actual experience itself, seeing people turn out to games in such huge numbers, it is so amazing. And every game I've been to, there's almost this like goosebumps period where you hear the roar of the crowd, and you're like, holy heck, like Australia is the epicenter of this football. I feel like sporting. You're giving me 
goosebumps. Right <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you've been going, you went to Brisbane, you went to Sydney, you're actually normally, um, you're working up in Darwin. Like, are you bumping into other fans when you're going to the airports and stuff like that? Yeah, there's always this knowing look where you <laughs> see other people in the Matildas jersey, all ages too, whether it's young kids or, you know, people are kind of around my age or even kind of our parents' age, I guess. And there's that little nod, particularly today on game day, is one of those really exciting things. It was the same in Brisbane, all across the city. People are dripping out in their Tillys gear. Same here in Melbourne. They have these fan sites in every city in Australia, even some of our smaller cities like Darwin, like Newcastle, where literally hundreds, if not thousands of people turn out and they're all there just for this one thing. And it, it really kind of bonds you together through, particularly in the Matildas case, what's been quite a stressful World Cup campaign. Yeah, just on that, how are the Matildas looking against Canada tonight? Because I've got to say, you're nervous. You are very, very nervous at the moment. I am so nervous. It's not <laughs> funny. Like, I literally, I was like on the train into town today. I was wriggling about. I was like grabbing at my forehead. You're bouncing yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a real thing. It's a real thing, 100%. So... Tonight is a massive game. It's do or die, really, for the Matildas. That's how their senior players have described it. That's how the coach, Tony Gustafsson, has described it as well, where they really they need to win tonight. And it's against formidable opponents. A lot of people have talked about how Canada won the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics, which is fairly well after the World Cup, the biggest women's football tournament in the world. Uh, they come in in somewhat shaky form. They didn't beat Nigeria in their first game. They got over the line against Ireland in what was quite a tricky game where the Matildas were a little bit more comfortable when they beat Ireland. It was tough for the Tillies too, but I think Australia looked a little bit better against Ireland. But mind you, we did lose to Nigeria, whereas Canada were able to secure a draw in that match too. So that was kind of what we've got coming into it. The last time we played Canada, we played a couple of friendly matches about a year ago in Brisbane and Sydney. We lost both of them. I wouldn't put too much stock in a friendly because the coaches are still kind of experimenting with sides and formation, but it's the most recent form indicator we have of the two sides coming up against each other. Yeah, and you mentioned um, the game last week against Nigeria. It clearly wasn't the result that anyone was hoping for. You were there in the stands in Brisbane. What was the atmosphere like when the final whistle went off? There was a lot of oh, goodness gracious, we're going to the final game now, like it's going to Melbourne. Uh, but there's always this tradition of Matilda's World Cup campaigns. It's never done the easy way. Last World Cup, we actually lost our first group game to Italy and it was absolute panic stations, like, oh my goodness, we need to get the wins against Brazil and Jamaica. But we did it, and we did it in a really special way in the last game of the group stage in 2019 where Sam Kershey came in and bagged a hat-trick, and it was just spectacular. And she actually famously had this super viral moment after the World Cup, which was like, I think uh, she said to all the haters, you can go and suck on that, and just walked <laughs> off, and it was just like, whoa! And just on that, like, the good news is that Sam Kershey is fit to play tonight. I mean, like, what would that mean for the team if she's back? It's... She is the spirit and soul of this Tillies team. It's certainly they're not just relying on Sam Kerr as their only player, but you can tell they've missed her big time. She's been a source of crucial moments when we've got our backs against the wall as the Tillies. Like you're turning to Sam Kerr to pull it off and to kind of almost get us out of trouble. There's this really fascinating thing about how fit she is. So on Saturday, she said, I'm fit to play. Yesterday at the press conference, the coach was super cagey about how much training she had done even whether or not she'll start tonight or if she'll come off the bench. I think in his ideal world, we're winning against Canada and she doesn't need to come off the bench and he can rest her for a knockout match. It's a gamble. A huge gamble. It's also a gamble starting her too because what if she goes out there, re-aggravates the calf injury, has to come off like... 
but there's this other element which is like, well, she's the one who's got it done for us so many times and I think if we're losing or we need that goal to get over the line, we, we have to throw her in there because she's the one who can take it. She's got that composure. She's just got the proven record year and year being one of the best players in the world for such a long time too that I, I can't see a way if we need her tonight where we're losing or we're, we're drawing that she's not going to come in. I think she's almost a certainty to play some part if we're in trouble. So what's going to happen tonight if we win lose or draw what is the option then okay so lose and we're out that's the most simple Oof. one <laughs> blunt <laughs> so we better not lose <laughs> win and we go through which is the other simple side of the equation a draw presents this quite complicated series of events now if we draw and nigeria lose to ireland by at least two goals we go through if okay. nigeria draw with ireland we're out if Nigeria beat Ireland and we've drawn again, we're out. If Nigeria, I think, only lose by one goal to Ireland, they technically go through on what's called goal difference because of that, the amount of goals you've scored in the tournament versus conceded. It's really complicated and it's kind of returned the Matildas from coach, players and certainly fans of just win, just win. Don't worry about a draw because a draw is way too risky. The other game between Nigeria and Ireland will be played at the same time. So if it is a tight match, you can expect people will be, you know, in the stands being like, Nigeria scored or Ireland scored or, you know, all sorts of things will happen and it will just be this movable feast of emotion and exhilaration. Oh my god, emotion, exhilaration, nerves. I, I've got them all after speaking to you. Miles, thank you so much. Good luck tonight. I'm going to be thinking about you and I'm watching them as well. Yeah, come on Matildas, till it's done. That was Hack Reporter and also our resident Matildas super fan, Miles Holbrook Walk there. That's it for the Hack Podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.